Amen. You may be seated. Thought today, what some call Transfiguration Sunday, what some would say is the end of a season of epiphany, I thought today would be a good time to take a short break from all the blood and deaths of 2 Samuel. So we're going to do that short break and we're going to return today to our gospel lesson. So if you return to Matthew chapter 17, uh, we're going to go back over verses 1 through 9. And as we turn there, uh, I am reminded of that real estate adage. You know, the question, what are the three most important factors for any piece of property? And what's the answer? Location, location, location. I'm reminded of that because we have a similar sort of thing that we say about trying to understand the scriptures and interpreting Bible passages and what are the three most important things to know to be able to understand a passage and somewhat facetiously but there is a grain of truth to it we say context context and context we're jumping in to matthew chapter 17 and jumping into matthew at a juncture like this makes an already hard passage to understand even harder i think Whereas if we had been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, I think we would be better prepared. So having that in mind, I'd like to ask for you to just glance at chapter 16. Glance at the divisions of that chapter. Glance at the, the stories that we find there. You'll remember right in the, it's in the middle of that chapter. Jesus has taken his disciples to this place known as Caesarea Philippi. It's a very, very interesting setting for what he's about to do. He, he's there at, in, a, in a place named after the Caesar, dedicated to the Caesar. He's at a place that was known for its paganism. He was at a place where there are shrines to this God or to that God or to that God or to that God. And they're all around. And Jesus brings his disciples there. And he says, who... Who do men say that I am? And then they give those answers, right? And then he, he drives home. Who do you say that I am? And it's there that we have this amazing, beautiful, God-given confession coming from the lips of Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Beautiful, perfect, right answer. Yeah? You're the Messiah. You're the one to be worshipped. You're the true king, not Caesar. You're the true one to be worshipped, not these pagan deities, not, not to Pan that was celebrated and worshipped in that area, not to Caesar, not to the, any of these other gods. You are the one. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responds, you know, that, that this was such a glorious confession. And upon this rock... I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So he gives this wonderful, beautiful word to his people about the victory of the church. And then he does this very strange thing. Now he'll begin to talk about what is ahead. It is at this point that he says, okay, yeah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed. How do you like that for acting like a king? I'm going there and then I will be resurrected. And what does Peter do? He's a, 
he's, he's, he balks, he's aghast. This is not what kings do. This is not what a Messiah is supposed to do. A Messiah is supposed to beat everybody. The king is supposed to wipe out his enemies. The king is supposed to set up this earthly kingdom and make it really good for all of his citizens. What are you doing? And, and Peter rebukes Jesus, doesn't he? But Jesus returns the favor, does he not? Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. If you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then to, to add to the tension, he tells his disciples, not only am I going to go suffer, but guess what, guys? You're going to suffer too. Take up your cross and follow after me. And just imagine being one of his disciples. Whoa. Yeah, we were hoping he was the Messiah, but we didn't want him to go about his work this way. And we don't necessarily want to be in on that suffering. And that's the context of our text today. Give your attention once again to God's beautiful, glorious, majestic, gracious word. After six days, he let it, he let it set in. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. We don't know exactly why, but he took those three. And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. We don't know what mountain it was. I mean, their guess is that it was Tabor. But we're not sure. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, don't you love it? Don't you just love Peter? I mean, he, what in the world's going on? I'm just going to talk. And he talks. And he says what he says. Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. We'll just camp out. We'll stay here. We'll just keep on enjoying this. He was still speaking when somebody cut him off. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Isn't that an interesting description? Bright and yet overshadows them. Bright cloud overshadows them. And a voice, the coal of the Lord, if you remember back to the baptism of Jesus, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Same thing he said, the voice said at the baptism, but now he had something, does he not? Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But, oh, isn't that glorious? But Jesus came and he touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The Word of God for the people of God. The text rounds out what some call the season of Epiphany. It's a collection of Sundays 
in which there is this emphasis upon the manifestation, the, the epiphany, the revelation of who Jesus is. Like Jesus is, yes, a child, but he's king. And that revelation, manifestation, that he's king, true king, king of kings and lord of lords, even to Gentile wise men. And like that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is beloved of the Father. That message, that manifestation, that revelation that we receive at Jesus' baptism, at his ordination for the ministry of being the Messiah. Uh, passages like the passage that we've been looking at in the past few Sundays in our Gospel readings, the Sermon on the Mount, where the living Word, the authoritative Word of God, proclaims His Word uh, in sermon form from the Mount. And now we have another epiphany. Now we have another revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And this time, it's a, it's a staggering glimpse of His glory. Glory that has been veiled in human flesh. It's been hidden. And now, there's a sneak peek. There's a revelation of who Jesus is in His fullness. And all this about who He was and who He is before the next season that some people look at as they work through the Christian calendar, a season in which we see not necessarily just what, who he is, but what he came to do, to suffer, to suffer even to death on a cross. From here to Holy Saturday, the focus will be upon the suffering of Jesus, upon his self-denial, upon his humiliation, upon his death. The focus will be upon his holy mission, his manner of doing battle as Messiah against the forces of evil, his, his mission that's in complete and perfect obedience to the will of the Father. He will be no unwilling victim. He will do this. He will willingly lay down his life for sinners like us. Now some people call that the season of Lent. Let me call it the holy march to the cross. That's where we're going. And to understand this passage, we need to ask and we need to answer, what happened? Why did it happen? And why does it matter to us? First, what happened? It's a mysterious text, isn't it? I mean, we read it, we think we know, and yet it's hard to grasp, fathom. What is easy to get, Jesus pulls aside these three Disciples, Peter, James, and John. He takes them away for a mini retreat, a mini sabbatical on top of the mountain. He takes them for instruction. And he takes them there to give them a counterbalancing truth about himself. Yes, he has just told them he's Messiah, and he, as Messiah, is going to suffer even to the point of death at the hands of the religious leaders. He's told them that, but now he's going to give them a counterbalancing truth to encourage them. Verse 2. And he was transfigured. I think the word uh, is the word that we get metamorphosis from. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Just try to grasp what's going on here. And his clothes 
became white, white as light. Think of the most brilliant light that you've seen in a house and how it staggers you. Think of the most, the, the whitest garment you've ever seen and it's nothing to compare. He gave them, you see, a glimpse. He gave them a foretaste of the boundless glory that had always been His. That was His. That was His then as the God-man and that He will one day display with no veils whatsoever, all veils removed. Words can't express the, the greatness of this, this vision, this revelation that they get of this epiphany. It's beyond our imaginations. Like Moses on the cleft of the rock, like Isaiah seeing a, a glimpse of the train of the robe of Yahweh. Resplendent light, majesty, purity, glory. And that word glory, as A.M. Ramsey once said, indicates that that word contains the greatest themes of all Christian theology. Bringing together in a remarkable way the unity of doctrines, the doctrines of creation, the doctrine of the incarnation, of the cross, the spirit, the church, and the world to come. Weight, light, glory. That's what happened. It's easy to say, but it's hard to get at, to understand, to fathom. And then these three disciples suddenly see two other people. And these two other people are, are Moses and Elijah. They're alive. And how the disciples knew it was Moses and Elijah, we don't know. But they did. And Moses and Elijah and Jesus talked. They had a good conversation. Can you imagine having been one of those disciples right there, right then, listening in on that? Knowing this is Moses. I don't know how I know it, but that's Moses. Oh, knowing this is Elijah. I don't know how I know it, but that's Elijah. And they're talking to my Jesus, my Messiah. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus and Moses and Elijah said, but Luke does. Luke tells us that they spoke about his departure which was he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. That's the mysterious what? Now why? Why did it happen? To what end? For what purpose? Why did it happen for the disciples? Well, I think, and again, some, somewhat conjecture, but to show them something of who their Messiah truly was, Right? They had only seen him in his failed form. And what an encouragement it would be for them to catch this glimpse of his true power, his true majesty, his true glory, particularly in the coming days when he's marching to Jerusalem. What an encouragement it's going to be at a point in the future for them to remember what they saw on the mount. Peter would later write in his second epistle, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And when you first read it, you think, okay, they saw Him uh, resurrected. And Peter's 
not referring to the resurrected appearance of Christ. He's, he's appealing to this passage. He goes on to say, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice, voice was born to him by majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This event has a huge impact later upon Peter. Transfiguration, you say, confirmed Peter's confession. The transfiguration confirmed to him that Jesus was the Christ. It would encourage them in the days to come that no matter if he would suffer and die, he was really this glorious, majestic, powerful, resplendent person. And if he's going to suffer and die, it's not because he's some victim that can't get out of it. If he's going to suffer and die, this sort of character, with this sort of power, with this sort of glory, with this sort of purity, with this sort of holiness, if he suffers and dies, it's his choice. He's doing it of his own accord. Calvin would write, the instruction Peter, James, and John now received was intended to be useful at a future period to themselves and to us, that no man might take offense at the weakness of Christ as if it were by force that he had suffered. He was subjected to death because he wished to be. He was crucified because he offered himself. This also happened to show them much the same thing as Jesus would show the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, right? What did he show to the disciples on the road to Emmaus? That the Old Testament did what? It, all of it did what? Pointed to him. Pointed to Jesus. And here there's something similar going on, you see. Here upon the mountain appears the human conduit for the law, Moses. And here upon the mountain to speak with Jesus appears one of the greatest of the prophets, Elijah. Here in Moses and Elijah we have law and prophets talking to Jesus. And after Peter's all too understandable bumbling, babbling words, the words that, whether he knew it or not, unfortunately put Jesus at the same level of Moses and Elijah. The Father would speak. Time to zip it, Peter. <laughs> I got something to say. The Father would speak and they would hear, and they would hear what? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him now, guys. Moses and Elijah have been pointing to him. Now listen to him. It's sort of like a trailer in a movie. Trailer's great, but when the movie comes, stop watching the trailer. Watch the movie. 
the movies come. And then Moses and Elijah, they do what? They're gone. Emphasizing the point. Who's left? The one they were to listen to. Jesus. They saw no one but Jesus only. That's not to say that the law and the prophets, that the Old Testament is unimportant, that it's useless to us now. But it is to say that the glory of the Old Testament is in the fact that the Old Testament points us to who? Jesus. Listen to Him. And listen to Him, brothers and sisters, Listen to him, Peter, James, and John, even when he speaks words that are hard for you to listen to. Hard for you to believe. Yes, Peter, James, and John, that's a hard word to hear that your Messiah, your Jesus, is going to die. But listen to him. Why did the transfiguration, the metamorphosis happen, if ever so briefly? Why did it happen for Jesus? And why did the voice resound yet again, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Like at his baptism, you remember, Jesus, the human nature, Jesus, the man, needed to hear this. Think about that. Jesus needs to hear this as he enters upon the second part of his great ministry. Why would Jesus, the man, need to hear this? What was he about to face? Terrible suffering. Terrible pain. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus needed to hear this as a word of encouragement as he's about to set his face to Jerusalem. The end is in sight. He needed it. And so finally, why does it matter to us? Why does it matter to you? Interesting story. One that's hard to grasp. But why does it matter to you? This glimpse of glory, of of, of what would have to, after this point, it would have to wait. It would have to wait until after what? The cross. It was, you see, a, a foretaste. It was a foretaste to remind Peter, James, and John, but to remind us that there is glory to come. But this glory is going to come when? Through what? Through suffering and through the cross. The way to full and final glory, the glory we long for, the glory in which our Jesus is going to be seen completely for who He is, Glory that we want to share in. That glory comes after suffering and the cross. Verse 9. And as they were coming down 
from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Do you believe in Jesus? My suspicion is you're here because you say you do. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you, are you following him? Are you in him? If you are, know this truth. You're going to suffer. Know this truth. There are dark days ahead. Maybe you're in those dark days now. You need to hear this. Jesus gave a foretaste of what is coming. Glory is coming, but glory comes on what side of suffering? Ultimately, fully, finally, after suffering. Tim Keller's right when he writes in The Reason for God. Jesus' miracles, he writes, are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we want that the world we were made for, a world of glory and perfection, a world not marred by sin, the world we all want if we're believers, that world is coming. The world we want is coming. Because Jesus, the one who revealed himself in some of his glory for a moment, is coming one day in great glory and splendor. Turn to the first chapter of Revelation. We end with words from Revelation chapter 1. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice, John writing, that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a, like flame of, a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death. The one you are waiting for will come in resplendent glory and majesty and he will say, Fear 
as you face your own struggles and trials and temptations in this fallen world. Remember the one who said to Peter, James, and John of old, and who will say to you, fear not. Let's pray. Glory is coming. Father, your truth is telling us glory is coming. The glory that boggles our minds. A glory that drives us, will drive us to eternal worship. Worship of the Lamb forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. We long for that day when this world will not be marred by sin. We long for that day and that world, a world of glory and perfection. We long for our glorious Savior that we would see Him face to face. Until that day, Father, by Your Spirit, help us to listen to Him and particularly to listen to Him in the midst of our pain and struggles and our times in which we almost despair, to listen to Him when He says to us, Fear not. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.